Welcome, everyone. You are listening to the LifePoint Christian Church Podcast. Let's get started. You know, throughout my years of schooling, whether it would have been middle school, high school, college, I had teachers or professors who would dedicate a significant portion of time to review, right? To review the content that we had learned or what they had hoped we had learned, right? And these review sessions would often take place at the end of a quarter or the end of a semester, right before midterms or final exams. Now, I know some of you, even into adulthood, haven't been able to escape the need to review information. Some of you have professions that require you to retain a bunch of information, so review is necessary. Those of you who deal with tax law, God bless you, by the way, um, for choosing that field. Uh, Those of you who have to deal with tax law, anytime the law changes, you have more information to study and review. Those of you who have or are working toward your realtor's license, there's so much information to study and take so you can pass the necessary exams. I know the same is true for those of you in the medical field or for many of you in finance, perhaps you're working toward a CPA. So much information, content to digest and then review review, review, review. Well, this morning is going to uh, uh, kind of serve as a review of sorts for all of us. This is week six of our series going through the book of Ephesians. However, we've only discussed portions of chapters one and two, which just goes to show that Paul's letter to the Ephesians is content rich, content heavy. Now, I don't think Paul was planning to give them an exam at the end of his letter and say, hey, you need to know all of this. It's going to be on the test. But Paul does seem to pause about halfway through his letter and and kind of give a recap of what has been discussed or shared in the first two chapters of his book. And so as we work our way through the letter, this, this book of Ephesians, we want to do the same. We want to pause and review so that we can uh, highlight some of the things that Paul discussed in the first two chapters. And we're going to discuss some things that we haven't uh, talked about yet as well. And of course, the purpose of this message isn't so that we have that information on the forefront of our minds, like I said, to take a test. The purpose of this is so that we can better understand what God has done for us and what God wants to still do in us through us, and for us. So that being said, I invite you to open up your copy of God's Word or navigate in your Bible app to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3, that's where we'll be spending the majority of our time together this morning. Now I gotta be honest, the start of chapter 3 is a little odd. Verse 1 says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles... And then he just stops. There's this abrupt stop in the middle of his sentence. It seems that something has popped into Paul's mind, which has caused him to stop where he was going and shift gears. Now, in just a little bit, we'll pick up his initial train of thought again down in verse 14. But first, he communicates this new train of thought in verses 2 through 13. And it's throughout this section, 2 to 13, that Paul speaks of his ministry to the Gentiles, all those who are non-Jews. He speaks to his ministry to the Gentiles and the significance of that ministry. And so if you were to read this section of verse 
verses for yourself, I think you would have no problem picking up on the fact that, that the significance of Paul's work among the Gentiles has something to do with this mystery that has been revealed. And I think you'd be able to pick up on that because in this section alone, Paul references or uses the word mystery four different times. Now, as Pastor Chris explained earlier in the series, this word mystery is, isn't referring to a riddle to be solved or an unexplainable phenomenon. Let me give you an example of that. How Tom Brady, at the age of 44, is still able to play quarterback at such a high level, that is an explainable phenomenon. How the Green Bay Packers went from having Brett Favre to Aaron Rodgers, while my Chicago Bears have had 20-plus starting quarterbacks in that same amount of time, is an unexplainable phenomenon. God, why? Why? Like, who needs to repent in the Bears organization? Something is wrong. That's another message. See, rather... What Paul is referring to is, is a spiritual insight from God that was unknown to previous generations. You see, the Old Testament revealed that Gentiles, along with the Jews, would be saved. However, God's plan for making that a reality was not fully revealed to previous generations. They had an idea of what to expect. They knew a Messiah was coming. But they didn't have 100% clarity or understanding as to all that would mean. And so therefore, this spiritual truth was a mystery to them. And so then, by the grace of God, the mystery, which is the method of salvation for the Gentiles, this mystery was revealed to Paul. God showed him that salvation would come through the sacrificial death and resurrection of Jesus. It's what we know as the gospel, that God sent Jesus to die on the cross for the sins of mankind, for who, and, and that everyone who puts their faith in him will be saved. And Paul communicates this clearly and succinctly in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 6. He writes, this mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and shares together in the promise in Christ Jesus. In other words, or, or to paraphrase, this mystery is that through faith in Jesus, the Gentiles are saved. However, verse 6 is, is more than a succinct summary statement. The latter half of this verse highlights various points that Paul covers in chapters 1 and 2 of Ephesians. He says that the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and shares together in the promise. You see, these items that are listed in verse 6 are the byproducts of salvation, the byproducts of a relationship with Jesus. And what's important for us to know about these salvation byproducts is that they not only apply to the Gentiles that Paul was writing to in the city of Ephesus, but they apply to us as well. And if they apply to us as well, then they ought to have an impact on our lives today. And that's what I want to spend time talking about this morning, these salvation byproducts. And the first, again, this first salvation byproduct that Paul mentions is that we are heirs together with Israel. 
In the Old Testament, we're told that the nation of Israel is God's chosen people. He, he initiates this special relationship with them. And we see the inception of that relationship all the way back in Genesis. And this relationship is significant because through the nation of Israel, God brings about his plan for salvation. And, and not just for the Jews, but ultimately for all mankind. And so this goes back to the mystery that we were just referring to, that we were just talking about. God would bring about salvation, that, but how he would go about bringing that salvation was not entirely clear to previous generations. But they knew it was coming. They knew God had a plan. And so fast forward now to the book of Ephesians, and, and Paul is now revealing that plan for salvation. It is by faith in Jesus that you are saved. However, salvation is not just for the Jews, it's for all mankind. What started with Israel has been extended to everyone. And this is why Paul says that we, Gentiles, are heirs together with Israel. Now, the fact that we are considered heirs with Israel is significant for a number of different reasons. You see, first, a, a common or distinguishing characteristic of those who are heirs is that they are family. As we know, inheritance is typically passed down to those who are in the family. And so to be heirs together with Israel, right, is to be part of the family of God. And for those who have a relationship with Jesus, if you've put your faith and trust in Jesus for your salvation, this truth about us is communicated throughout the pages of Scripture. Romans chapter 8, verses 15 through 17 says this, For you do not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you receive the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Paul also talks about this in Galatians chapter 3, and, and he goes on to communicate it again in his letter to the Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 1 verse 5, it says that God has adopted us as sons and daughters. In Ephesians chapter 2 verse 19, he goes on to write that you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. You see, this is incredible news. This is significant news. This news matters, not only because we are God's children, he considers us to be a part of his family, but because God is the one giving out this inheritance. You see, earthly inheritance, it's all about money and stuff, right? When you receive it, it's money and stuff. But God's inheritance is so much greater. No inheritance we ever receive from grandparents or parents will ever compare to what God has to offer. First and foremost, we inherit eternal life. Our eternity with him is secure. And when our time on this earth comes to an end, we will be with God forever. Described in Revelation as a place where there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. And additionally, we are the recipients both now and in the future of the incomparable riches of God. Again, not money and stuff, but grace, wisdom, 
peace, love, joy, compassion. And that list goes on and on and on. See, God is the source of it all. As James writes, uh, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights. This second salvation byproduct that Paul mentions in verse 6 is that we are members together with Israel of one body. Meaning Jews and Gentiles are now one unified group as a result of their shared faith in Jesus. In order for us to understand the significance of that, we also have to understand that that wasn't always the case. And Paul talks about that in the previous chapter. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 12 says, Remember that formerly, pre-relationship with Jesus. Remember that formerly, you who are called Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who called themselves the circumcision, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. In other words, Gentiles were on the outside looking in. And this caused division. This caused disunity. This caused discord between Gentiles and Jews. But then Jesus comes and he changes all of that. See, Paul goes on to write in chapter 2, verses 13 and 17. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace, and in his one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to those who were far away and peace to those who were near. This is significant for us. This matters for us because we are all equal in Christ. And that is captured, that truth is captured by the expression, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. There is no Christian hierarchy. There are no second-class Christians. We all need to be saved just as much as everybody else. Therefore, our commonality in Christ ought to pave the way for us to experience the unity, peace, and oneness that Paul writes about. Because of our faith in Jesus, we ought to be able to apply the words that Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. He says this, If anyone, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and in purpose. Unfortunately, though, the sad reality for us as Christians is that we fail to operate in this way all too often. We cling to the barriers. We cling to the hostility that has already been taken care of, that has already been destroyed by Christ. 
And we continue to experience this disunity for, for a myriad of reasons. Race, politics, preference, those who are new to the faith versus those who are well-established in the faith. And of course, the goal is not uniformity. God has made us different different personality types, the color of our skin, our wirings, what we like, what we dislike. He's made us different. We're not to seek uniformity. That's not what we're talking about with this idea of unity. But see, we, rather than celebrate our differences, those things that God built in, it was intentional, it was by design, rather than celebrate those differences and still pursue unity, we allow our differences to divide us and create hostility. And this happens whenever we make snap judgments or assumptions without knowing context or intentions. It happens when we fail to give the benefit of the doubt. It happens when we don't put the interests of others ahead of our own. And all too often, Rather than approaching someone directly about a difference you have that might frustrate you or annoy you or that you simply don't understand or an issue that you need more information about, we allow hostility and disunity to creep in because it festers internally. Or we go and gossip about it, bringing others into a scenario that they have no business being a part of. Due to our sin nature, we have this, this natural bent toward disunity and discord. This is where we go naturally, right? When there's a gap in information, what do we do? Our tendency is to fill it with negativity. Oh, they must have meant this about that, right? Oh, they, they must have meant this with their tone or the fact that they didn't finish this statement, right? We, we fill all of that stuff in with negativity. And, and we don't first stop to say, okay, what is the context? What is their actual intentions? We drift toward disunity and discord. And for this reason, we need to remind ourselves often of Jesus' words in John 13, 35. By this, all men will know if you are my disciples, that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Christians loving Christians. Yeah, we're supposed to love all people, but this verse is about Christians loving Christians. See, I, I believe that our ability to pursue oneness, unity, despite our differences, is our greatest opportunity to show a watching world that Jesus makes a difference. I believe that. If we can get along despite our differences, but be unified, that will be the church's greatest testimony to showing that, hey, Jesus makes a difference. But that's only gonna happen if we're driven by our love for Jesus and others, rather than allowing the color of our skin, our political perspectives, our COVID preferences, and what's best for me to run the show. 
The third salvation byproduct that Paul mentions in verse 6 is that we are sharers together, again, with Israel. We are sharers together in the promise. From Ephesians chapter 1, we know that the promise that Paul is referring to in Ephesians chapter 3, 6, is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Chapter 1, verse 13 says, And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. Paul also refers to the promise of the Holy Spirit in Galatians chapter 3, verse, verse 14. And this has great significance in our lives because the Holy Spirit serves as the guarantee of our salvation. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 14, Paul writes, The Holy Spirit is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. A few weeks ago, earlier in this series, Pastor Chris helped us to understand that the, the Holy Spirit is a mark of God's ownership. We belong to him. We are his possession. And not only that, the Holy Spirit living in us is our assurance of what's to come, which is eternal life. And so, not only can we have confidence that our eternity is secure, but the Holy Spirit living in us is a game changer for the way we live our lives right now. Because as you and I learn to rely on and submit to the Spirit every single day, we will benefit from the wisdom and the guidance that he provides, the correction that he gives, the power that he bestows, and the transformation that he brings about in us. Now, following verse 6, Paul goes on to talk a little bit more about his ministry to the Gentiles and, and his calling to reveal that ministry, how they could be saved through faith. And as this section 2 to 13 comes to a close, Paul shares one more salvation byproduct. In verse 12, he says, In him, in Jesus, and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. The fourth salvation byproduct that he mentions is that we have access to God. Prior to putting our faith in Jesus, Paul says that we were dead in our transgressions. Our sin caused us to be separated from God. And there was absolutely nothing that we could do on our own to bridge that gap. Thankfully, though, God decided to come to us. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5 says, Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And then he goes on in verse 13. He says, But now in Christ, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. And having been brought near, Paul goes on to say in verse 18 that we have access to the Father. The author of Hebrews, re, Hebrews reiterates this very same message. In Hebrews 4.16, it says, Let us approach the throne of grace with confidence, so we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Once again, this has significance in the lives of us who are followers of Jesus because we don't serve a God who holds us at arm's length. 
We serve a God who, who loves us unconditionally and welcomes us with open arms as a father does his child. And when we go to him, we will receive exactly what we need. Now, to be clear, that may not always be what you want, right? It's not going to always be what you want, but it will always be what we need, what he knows is in our best interest. And so for this reason and more, we need to go before God in prayer as often as we can, applying Paul's words in 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, to pray continually. And as written in Philippians 4, verse 6, to present our requests to God. You see, we have unlimited access to the throne of grace. But I would imagine that we could all stand to utilize it a little bit more often. On the heels of these words about having access to God, Paul returns to his original train of thought from Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1, and he prays for the believers in Ephesus. And in essence, he's praying for us as well. First, in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 3, he prays that the Spirit will strengthen, in, uh, or excuse me, strengthen us in our inner being, so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. Now, now this term inner being, it's not one that we come across very often in Scripture, but it refers to the soul of a person. Or in other words, the, the term is meant to convey the core of who we are as people. And so commentators say that Paul's prayer for our, our inner being to be strengthened and for Christ to dwell in our hearts is a prayer about our sanctification, which is just a churchy word of saying the process of becoming more and more and more like Jesus. And so as the Spirit strengthens our soul and Christ dwells in our hearts, Paul's hope for us is that it will produce a life that has increasing conformity to the will of God and the way of God for our lives. And I don't know about you, but I could stand to be praying that prayer a lot more often for my own life. Paul goes on to say in verses 17 through 19, he goes on to pray that we will have this growing understanding of, of God's immense love for us and that it will produce a life that is filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. And, and here again is yet another phrase that we just don't come across very often in Scripture, filled to the measure of the fullness of God. But in essence, it means that God wants us to be, or that, that we become everything God wants us to be. Filled to the measure of the fullness of God, becoming everything that he wants us to be. And while we have a role to play in that, we're not just to be passive bystanders. God has given us a role to bring that about in our lives. We can also be grateful that it doesn't rely entirely upon us. As Pastor Chris referenced last week, God is faithful. And he will continue to bring about the work and complete the work that he has started in us. As this chapter, chapter 3, comes to a close and we reach the midpoint, the halfway point of this letter, Paul's words in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20 and 21, serve as a timely reminder. He writes, Now, to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, 
To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. You see, the majority of Paul's letter up to this point is all about what God has done and is doing on behalf of the Gentiles, including you and me. We've been adopted into the family of God. We've received the Holy Spirit as a guarantee of our salvation. We've been brought from spiritual death to spiritual life. And we belong to a God whose love for us is so great that it's beyond our comprehension. And if that sounds too good to be true, or if for a moment we doubt God's ability to bring that on in our lives, to produce that in our lives, or if we find ourselves in a place where our, our perspective of God is simply too narrow, it's too small, having just mentioned all of these things that God is doing and bringing through us and in us in Ephesians chapter one and two, he ends by saying, remember, God is able. And not only that, He's able to do far more than you can even ask or imagine. So don't put him in a box. Don't do yourself the disservice of, of not believing that God can do what he says he wants to do in us. He is able. So what is our response? How can we apply this message to our lives. I think there's two primary ways that come to mind for me at least. First, we need to express our thanks and gratitude to God. And I think this is timely with Thanksgiving only being a few days away. This, this is an appropriate response because when we consider our salvation, that we've done nothing to deserve it or earn it, and the byproducts of our salvation that are a demonstration of God's grace alone. We come to this place of realization that there's nothing I can do to repay God. There's absolutely nothing I can do to repay God. And so all that's left is to say thank you. And so as we spend time, especially this week, thinking about the things that we have to be grateful for, I hope God's goodness and faithfulness is at the top of your list. And second, when it comes to applying this message, we can live a life worthy of the calling that we've received. This is Paul's command. It's his, it's his challenge to us as he begins the very next chapter, chapter 4. You see, we've been chosen by God to be holy and blameless. We've been adopted as his children. We've been made alive. And now it's time for us to live a life that reflects that calling. And so how do we go about doing that? Well, Paul makes that clear. He lays that out for us in the remainder of his letter, chapters 4, 5, and 6. And I would encourage you at some point during this next week to take a little bit of time and read those three chapters. Begin to increase your understanding and have a knowledge, have a realization of what God is looking for from us. 
what it means to live a life that's worthy of this calling that we've received. And then make sure you're here in 2022 for when we finish this series, part two, and we get into chapters four, five, and six. A little bit of a teaser for you, all right? Express our thanks to God. Live a life that's worthy of this calling that we've received. Let's pray. God, we owe everything to you. Every good and perfect gift is from you. The air we breathe, the food we eat, the relationships we have. God, the fact that you've extended grace to us, that you've made salvation available to us, it's, it's only because of you. And we recognize that there's nothing we can do to repay you. And so as we enter this week where, where our hearts and minds are more prone to focus on being thankful and, and grateful for what you've done, God, I, I pray that your goodness and faithfulness would, would be on our minds. God, that we would take advantage of this access that you've given us, that we'd go before the throne of grace, recognizing that we need you. God, we need you to be unified. We need you to work through us, the church, and God, so we can represent you well to a world who is hurting, God, to a world that is broken, a place that is, is in need of you. And you've given us this privilege, this mantle to be the hope of the world, this representation of Christ here. God, help us to do better inside these walls, in this community of loving one another so that the world may know that we are your disciples. God, for your glory and for your honor alone. Amen. We hope you enjoyed today's message. You can learn more about us by visiting us online at lifepoint.org. If you are ever in the Sacramento area, we would love to see you in person. Events and service times can be found on our website. Thank you for listening, and we hope you join us for our next episode.